The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. If you're a parent of a young kid, you know how hard it is to find high-quality child care, let alone pay for it. And with endless research telling us how critical those early years are in closing the achievement and socioeconomic gap, what can be done to improve the quality, supply, and affordability of this care? I'm David Yoakum, and today we're joined by Taryn Morrissey, Associate Professor of Public Policy at American University, to talk about those critical first thousand days of life and what governments can do to support their youngest residents. Taryn Morsey, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So today we're going to talk about childcare. I think to kind of lay some groundwork here, it might be useful to focus first on childcare development in the earliest years, and even starting off with when we're referring to sort of early childcare, what years are we talking about, and what are the things that are happening during those years? In general, when people refer to the early childhood period, they refer to before kindergarten, so anywhere from birth to age five, although many policymakers are increasingly referring to the infant and toddler period, so the first three years of life, and that's um, a time which brain and physical development is extremely rapid. The first thousand days of life, uh, so much happens in, in terms of child development. You, children are, are learning what it's like to be in the world, exist in the world, interact with, with other people, uh, and they need warm and responsive caregiving. They need uh, stimulation. They learn numbers. They learn letters, but also um, how to interact with people. And one of the things that you talk about in your research is this concept of being prepared for entering school. And I think one of the things we'll actually get to is sort of when should you be entering, what year, but let's say it's it's kindergarten or maybe it's pre-K three if you're in the district. What does it mean to be prepared? Like what are the sort of things that you're you're quantifying or expecting a child after those first thousand days to be able to do? There are skills that are people refer to as cognitive skills, and then there are non-cognitive skills, which, frankly, I hate that term because it refers to the negative. Those are more social-emotional skills. As a psychologist, I like to call it social-emotional skills or behavioral skills. So in cognitive skills, you can think about knowing letters and numbers, but also there are skills just uh, understanding how a book is held, what direction you turn the pages. Uh, there are children who enter kindergarten not knowing that because they haven't interacted much with books, for example. In terms of social-emotional skills, it's um, a sense of, of sharing. You know, many five-year-olds still have trouble sharing. Many adults have trouble sharing. But understanding the importance of that, interaction, interacting with peers as well as with teachers, having um, expectations of what uh, adults can provide and what um, children can provide in terms of play opportunities, security, those are all um, key aspects to, to enter school prepared to learn. And I think this is a point that it's useful to hear more examples because sometimes if you're 
coming from a family that has folks that have gone to college and you're thinking about educational preparedness, you might have intuitions about, you know, are you reading at a kindergarten or first grade or one year later? And you're given examples like knowing how to hold a book. Are there other illustrations like that that come to mind? Sheer word knowledge. There's um, something called a 30 million word gap. And that's the gap that's been identified between kids raised with parents who have college degrees and kids raised in, in families that uh, lack high school degrees. And kids in, in less educated families literally hear many, many fewer words than kids in college educated families. Not necessarily different words, they're just talked to a lot less. And that's important because they're learning a language. You know, every, everybody knows how hard it is to learn a second language. Learning a first language, you have to learn all of the basics. So we know that infants and toddlers in higher educated households are, are literally talked to more. And it's not intuitive to talk to an infant who doesn't talk back, right? But it's extremely important. And one of the basic things and most, most important things you can, you can do to promote child development. Another example that stuck out to me that you've mentioned in other settings is a thing like whether you can recognize all letters. Sure. Well, we know in, in general, it's, it's in terms of um, uh, measures across skills that about 49% of kids are entering kindergarten ready to learn. So less than half. And that's including of all income levels. Um, but disproportionately low income kids are entering school less ready to learn. We know that something like recognizing all letters, that um, high income Kids can do that um, at much higher rates, but it's still not universal for sure. Um, but it's a first step to then understanding that letters are attached to sounds. And then when you put letters together, they make words that have meaning. T- kindergarten teachers then end up having to either reteach skills that, that kids who have uh, preschool experiences and other kinds of learning experiences come in knowing and basically catch up the um, kids who lack those experiences. What is it about being lower income that is causing these problems? Because I assume that's a, a proxy for other things that are happening in the background. It's not literally having less money. What are the ways you would unpack that? I mean, one are material resources, right? You have fewer books in the home, and so you have fewer interactions with books. There, that also translates to potentially lower quality nutrition and other things that affect physical development. But um, it's also a matter of time. People are are income and time constrained. And many families, the vast majority of families work and their children have to go somewhere while they work. High income families can pay for high quality experiences where adults and children interact very closely. There's low ratios, there's individual attention, there's um, high quality materials, education materials, outside space, et cetera. In those settings, whereas many low-income kids end up in very low-quality settings, um, watching TV a lot, quite a bit. And so they're not necessarily talked to as much. They don't necessarily get individual attention. And it's really a missed opportunity. Sidebar here for a second. When you're watching TV, you're hearing a lot of words. Why doesn't that have the same effect? Back in in undergrad, actually, I was a a lab rat for a, a professor doing this. We know that kids and adults learn less from the same exact scene shown on TV as they do shown in person. We're social creatures by habit, and so we like to actually be interacting with people in person as opposed to in TV. And I should say Sesame Street and other kinds of television learning are, are really beneficial and helpful, but they just can't bridge that gap that human interaction can do. So what is the state of play of childcare in the United States at the moment? 
We have a uh, largely private pay system that's extremely expensive in which it's really, really hard to find childcare and extremely hard to find high quality childcare. On average, parents are paying about 11% of their income on childcare, but what what they're getting is relatively, uh, on average, mediocre. Um, so, arguably, childcare is expensive. Uh, here in the district, it's, it averages about $22,000 a year, and in many respects, it's too cheap. We should be paying more for childcare and not less. Um, most of childcare costs are centered on labor costs, so salaries and benefits or retirement to the extent that they exist in, for childcare workers. And because parents can't afford to pay anymore, they're already really struggling, childcare workers' salaries and benefits are really low. And stepping back for a second, we're typically talking, at least if you're looking nationally, and then I'll ask you about the district specifically, ages zero to three or four, so this is before kindergarten. Because, I mean, if you're stepping back for the whole system, there's a sense in which come kindergarten, there's a state role that's being played with what kids are doing. Come kindergarten or whenever entry into public school happens, these costs are reduced dramatically. I have two children under age four, and I'm a proud parent of a pre-K three student. It has been, uh, it's an immense income relief. My husband and I are, are beneficial to have stable jobs and, and to have a two-parent family. It's, it's extreme relief to not have those really, really high costs of, of the year before. And what is the structure here in the district? So in the district, we have um, near universal pre-K-3 and pre-K-4, so we're threes and fours. About 66% of pre- uh, D.C. three-year-olds attend pre-K-3. I think it's about 88% of four-year-olds attend pre-K-4, so in, in the public sphere. The kids who aren't in public settings are often in child care centers. So we're, we're a leader. That, that's the highest rates of public preschool attendance in, in the country by, by far. We also spend... I believe uh, it's about 16000 maybe $16,500 in public funds for pre-K 3 and 4, which is, again, a leader in the, in the country. And it's, it was developed just within the last decade, and it really demonstrates the district's leadership on early childhood. And for those who don't have kids, haven't been in childcare settings like this, let's kind of take me, in, take me into one of these rooms, take me into one of these facilities. What are the things that are happening. I want to tee up a little bit of discussion about what it means to provide ch- quality child care. So in a, in a high quality child care setting, you would have a schedule that would vary by, by children's age. So very young kids before the age um, of 12 months or so nap twice a day, for example. But there would be a regular set schedule. You'd have a provider who has specialized training in early childhood who's um, warm and responsive. You'd have ratios where um, that depend, again, on the age. Uh, it's about um, one adult to four infants or one adult to three infants is typical in the district. Other states vary about that. You, you have some states that have one adult to six infants, which I can, can't imagine caring for six infants at once. And, and assistant teachers who also um, have specialized training in early childhood. You see children interacting with age-appropriate toys, going outside, um, and um, following a curriculum, a deliberate lesson plan, you know, not sitting in desks necessarily. We're not talking about, you know, school in the traditional sense, but exploring, interacting with with water play or um, bubbles or things, songs and and books, lots of book reading and lots of of language. You want, again, you want caregivers to talk to to kids, even importantly, before they can't talk back. 
What sort of training do caregivers have? It really varies by state. Uh, The district recently instituted new educational requirements for child care providers. It hasn't come into effect yet. I think the first requirements are coming into effect in December of this year. But that lead teachers have to have an associate's degree, with including specialized training in early childhood, and, and assistant teachers have, will have to have a, a child development associate, which takes about six months to a year or so to, to complete. And then directors will have to have a bachelor's degree. Do we have enough child care providers at the moment? No. No. And uh, I can tell you from personal experience, it's really, really hard. It was, uh, my son was on a wait list for, I believe, 15 months before we got into a child care center. Many families in the district end up using informal care. And for higher income families, that ends up being nannies or nanny shares. For low income families, that ends up being neighbors and relatives, um, many of whom provide high quality care, but many of whom are, um, are constrained in other respects or caring for many kids and lack time. And so unfortunately, many kids end up in low quality settings. Do you have a sense of how big the gap is in terms of availability? Not necessarily in the district. I don't. Nationally, we have public interventions that are trying to help families pay for child care. We have a child care subsidy program that serves 15% of eligible families across the country. Um, the district is much, much better about that. And even those who, that 15% who receive subsidies, it's very low. I mean, we, I just mentioned child care is on average about $22,000 a year in the district. Other places it's less, but uh, the average subsidy amount is $6,000 a year approximately. So it's not paying for child care. It's not paying for high quality child care. So as a result, even those who are receiving subsidies are often in lower quality settings. And there are many centers that do not accept subsidies because they can't stay in the black and receive pu- public funds. So they have to be private pay. Say a little bit more about that, about why a center wouldn't accept families coming with subsidies. Sure. You're, you're a center director, and you serve kids from birth to five, and you would like to help um, low-income kids, like to provide mixed-income settings. But your costs, your constraint, you're trying to pay your, your workers well, keep, retain the good ones, provide a st- consistent, stable caregiving, which you know is important for quality. You're trying to, to pay rent and upgrade your playground. Your tuition and your costs really per kid are about $20,000 a year, and the subsidy would pay you 6000 of that. It's just hard to, you can't make ends meet. So stepping back, there's, I imagine it just a tension here between the, the quantity, the availability of childcare and some of these quality issues. So you start having higher, more stringent licensure and training requirements, fewer people are going to be able or have the resources to get through it. How do you think about this trade-off? Or how do you think we should think about this trade-off? I think one analogy is the K-12 through education system. Um, because, you know, un- we, we require educational requirements for our K-12 through teachers, as we should. And we pay them in some, it varies by state, but we pay them presumably commensurate with their educational requirements. Uh, we have K-12 through education teachers striking um, for more salary, but the differential between what we expect and what we pay is so high in the child care market, meaning that we're increasing educational requirements for child care workers and not increasing salary. And those two have to happen hand in hand. Now, parents are squeezed, so they can't pay more. Um, and you know, sal- the child care worker salaries are, I mean, nationally, it's about $21,000 a year. Almost half are receiving some sort of public assistance. That's 
um, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or formerly known as food stamps. That's Medicaid. And that's child care subsidies for their own kids because they can't afford child care. They can't afford to pay $22,000 a year for child care when you're making 21, right? And to put some perspective on that, I think you've seen elsewhere that the salary for kindergarten teachers, for instance, nationally something like $51,000 up to $58,000 for, for high school teachers. Why the gap there, you think? I mean, that's a huge difference in salary. I think it's all public funds. You know, we, we all of a sudden, when kids turn age five, we think of them as a public good, that now it's a public responsibility to educate them. But before age five, they're not. It's all parents' responsibility. And so it's all private money, for the most part, at least. It's, dra- it's much, much more private money. And why do you, where do you think that emerges from? I think it's a, it's a remnant of our you know, public education system from when it started. We, um, uh, we Kindergarten, frankly, is a new-ish idea. We used to start at first grade. And there are still some states that, and, and locales that have part-day kindergarten, which the research is, is in on that. We know full-day kindergarten is better than part-day kindergarten. But we're slow to catch up with that. And, and the U.S. was a leader internationally when it created our K-12 through education system. And arguably, it's responsible for, um, for our status and how we created you know, technolo- technological advances and um, our economy over the last 100 years. But we haven't built on that, whereas other nations have. They've surpassed us. You have the vast majority of other developed countries starting public school at three, and providing much more public investment before age three. When did the increase to include kindergarten happen? That was, I believe, mostly in the 60s, 50s and 60s. Relatively recently. And are you seeing a similar sort of debate happening now for pre-K four and three? Is this a sort of a natural expansion to your mind? I think so. And we argue in our book that the public school should start at age three, that kids are ready to learn in the same sense as kindergarten as they are at age three. That doesn't mean that kids under age three aren't ready to learn. They're just learning differently. But as a public investor, as a public good, we should start schooling at age three. I mean, you might even think it's, it's, it's backwards here if what you were saying about the first three or the first thousand days being so critical. Should we actually overinvest in that? Maybe even more than kindergarten for a second? Agreed. It, it, the investments might look a little different. So paid family leave, for example, is a fantastic investment in, in young kids and, and parents. It, that period, those first months of life are so key for establishing parent-child relationships, that trust, that interaction that lasts a lifetime. And that, so it's important for both mothers and fathers to have that opportunity. Right now in the, in the U.S., we lack, uh, we're the unique with Papua New Guinea in, in the world for not providing paid family leave at the birth of a child. Um, so our, our book also specifies a plan for that. So it's, it's a slightly different investment, at least in the very early years. But yes, then I would say once families go back to work, uh, depending on whenever that, that leave might end, we argue 16 weeks, although there most European countries and Canada have much longer paid leave programs, much longer uh, durations of paid leave. But once families go back to work, they need high-quality child care settings for their kids. And parents with young kids are at the lowest earning years of their lives. They haven't had time to save like you do for college. You don't have subsidized loans like you do for college. And, and yet you're often paying for five years or at least four years, the same amount that it, of, of time that it should take you to earn a four-year degree, but for child care. And in about 30 states and the district, child care costs 
are more than um, tuition at public four-year colleges. So we're somewhat backwards, you know, and, and the most vulnerable children don't even have a shot at any of those Pell Grants or subsidized loans. I believe, um, I heard a statistic, and it may be update, uh, may need to be updated, but we have pockets of concentrated poverty in this city, um, but in, in nationally, where, say, 40% or more residents are, live under the poverty line. A kid growing up in a neighborhood like that has a 4% chance of going to college. So Pell Grants do nothing for 96% of kids in those neighborhoods. We need to really invest early. The interplay between paid family leave and early child care seems really important and interesting here because I could imagine that someone who has maybe an, a, an intuitive reaction against wanting publicly subsidized early education, they, what they don't, they don't have in mind is, you know, the kids fending from themselves. It's instead an intuition that's tracking back to, well, that's the role the parent should be playing. And paid family leave seems like one of the tools that could actually help kind of tip this, you know, navigate this balance between these two. How do you think about that balance? What do you think are sort of the right ways to, to time it? Um, I also am wondering if this is a, a place that people across the spectrum of opinions here or maybe be kind of talking past each other in a way they don't need to if the paid family leave and child care discussions were merged together more explicitly than they sometimes are? Agreed. They're administered by different agencies and thought of by different different folks. I, f- I do feel like there's more of a convergence now. I mean, there's The paid family leave has gotten a lot of policy attention in the district and in other places. And there was a a Brookings Institute, American Enterprise Institute, joint publication about paid family leave that was really bipartisan. Um, And um, I think think you're right in that. In terms of the duration of paid family leave or following the birth of a child, there's not a great way to research what the best duration is. Uh, At least, you know, there's measures for what's the best duration for maternal recovery, what's the best duration for child health, what's the best duration for um, um, mother or father's economic success in the long term. We know that too long of a duration of paid family leave ends up costing the the person who took the leave um, in economic outcomes. Bridget Schulte at the New America Foundation has a really great white paper on kind of spelling out what the best duration is by each of those outcomes. It's probably about eight or nine months, and we're not even talking about that in the U.S. That's just not a reality. Right. How's this stack up to other countries? Most other countries provide about a year. I believe Canada is about a year. Um, I mean, it it varies, um, and some are, are more generous than that. Although, then again, if you're if you're interested in um, uh, labor force participation, uh, there's some um, penalties for parents who take longer than a year. Well, so having articulated some of the challenges in the space, and they seem related around the availability of providers, which is related to the availability of funding to pay for it, what is the thinking on what to do about it. And you, of course, have recently written a book, Cradle to Kindergarten, A New Plan to Combat Inequality, that I just want to invite you to talk us through your thinking on what we can do moving forward. Great. So we, we our book has a four-pronged plan. Um, it's first paid family leave and uh, publicly supported. The next is, um, is a child care 
subsidy that's that we term an assurance. So this is uh, a sliding income scale based subsidy that's adequate enough to pay for high quality care. So um, it really beefs up the amount that goes to providers so that they can actually provide consistent high quality care. Uh, and this is for licensed providers, so licensed child care centers, licensed family child care homes. Then for families, because traditionally in the U.S., particularly in child care, wants to preserve parental choice. Some parents choose to to stay at home with their kids, particularly their young kids. Um, Some parents prefer to have grandma or an uncle or an aunt take care of kids, their neighbor. So for those using unlicensed care, we drastically expand the, the existing child care tax credit to be refundable. Right now it is not refundable, so it doesn't go to those families with no tax liability, those lowest income families who could benefit most. And right now it's capped at $600, so we would cap it at um, $3,000 and for one child and 6000 for more than one child, so it would actually provide some benefit. So um, the third part of our plan is universal preschool for threes and fours through the the public education system, largely similar to what DC has, and it's largely modeled on what what the district currently has. And then the fourth component is a new imagined, a reimagined Head Start. Um, You know, Head Start right now serves mostly four-year-olds, and it still only serves 40% of poor four-year-olds. And we know from the research that four is is late to, to try to move the needle. And in, in, um, it's not a head start when you start at four. So Head Start is a public, uh, federally funded public program, early care and education program for low-income kids, uh, essentially below the poverty line and so, some ch- children with special needs. Uh, it only serves 40% of poor four-year-olds. There's also early Head Start, which is designed for kids um, zero to, to three. That serves 4%. Of eligible kids, so four percent of um, poor infants and toddlers. So most kids who are eligible aren't receiving help. But we do know that from the research that Head Start promotes cognitive and social emotional outcomes. We argue in our book that it could can move the needle even more if it started early. So at or before birth with home visits, um, particularly for for um, at risk families like teen families and in more intensive early care and education right from from the get-go. Right now, it's Head Start largely provides part-day preschool throughout the school year, so it's not a great child care program. Most parents don't work part-day just during the school year, um, so full-day year-round programming would be helpful both for children's development as well as supporting parents' employment. What you just said there about Head Start starting before the child is even born is, I think, another kind of flavor similar to what we were talking about with paid family leave around the investments in not only the child, but in the parents and in the household, which I'm a new dad. I've got two kids. I'm benefiting from paid family leave right now. And it's actually one of the things I'm most grateful for in life to have these sort of paid moments to be able to spend that time. What, what are the other, I mean, how should we be thinking about the, the parents in this equation? in relation to other sort of supports that they might or might not be getting? And kind of how do you conceptualize them in this whole setting? Well, at first, parents are children's earliest and most important teachers. So they're they're obviously key to this this um, equation. And their, their uh, preferences for what kinds of experience they want their kids to have uh, need to be primary. So that's, I think, we're, you know, in, in the United States, we're really uh, promote parental choice um, as, a, as a value, and particularly for um, the under five or under three crowd. Um, so um, I also think that um, 
we can't expect early care and education to be a panacea, right, for poverty. We do know it's the return on investment for every dollar you spend on early care and education, you get a lot back. Uh, and it's a two-generation intervention. It promotes parents' employment and self-sufficiency, and it promotes the workforce of tomorrow. But low-income families are facing um, a multitude of, of issues from uh, lack of job quality, from a lack of pay, um, food insecurity. So it's, it's um, you know, I, I like to say we don't, we don't um, talk about, well, is second grade effective? We talk about is preschool effective? Like, does, does second grade work? That's not a question people ask, right? But many pe- researchers and policymakers ask, well, is pre-K effective? Does pre-K work? And, and it does. We just can't expect it to do everything, mm-hmm. right? And we also can't only invest it at age four, just one year, and expect it to have you know, to change families and children's lives so drastically. And I think that opens up the question of what are reasonable expectations for, I'll say educators to sort of include people teaching kindergarten, first grade, but now also if we do start to expand to pre-K four, pre-K three and beyond, you know, this is something that comes up in the educational debates and other settings of you can't, like teachers can't do everything for kids there has to be a role for other elements of the community. Right. What do you think is the balance in this kind of way? I think right now we're extremely imbalanced in lacking investment in the early years. Um, when childcare expenses are the most, when families are just confronting a ton of changes and a ton of new expenses. I also have, have two young kids and it, um, the lack of sleep alone is tough to adjust to, but the expenses for childcare, for diapers, for for formula, for food, um, when we just we really leave young parents on their own to negotiate all of these things. We we don't even have good information systems in most places to to help them locate a childcare center, let alone help them pay for it. So let's talk a little bit about cost, because I think that is the. Maybe the elephant in the room on this one. It would be great to give more and more resources to, to families. But where is it coming from? And before we actually go there, this, the numbers, like to give a sense of what we're currently paying and what, what you're proposing, how much it would increase the amount. Sure. So if you add up all fa- federal and state funding for the, the first five years of life, so we're talking on, before kindergarten, um, we spend on Head Start and child care subsidies and state public preschool, as well as... So for some of the states and um, and cities that have paid family leave, we spend about $30 billion as a country on the first five years of life. That we, our book would add um, by, by increasing paid family leave, by uh, creating this child care assurance and refundable tax credit, by creating universal preschool for threes and fours, and by beefing up Head Start, we propose another $70 billion in funding. So for a total of $100 billion. And that's a lot of money, right? I and mean, we're certainly not going to deny that. It's still less than 1% of GDP. It would still represent less than 1% of GDP for the U.S., putting it, putting us back approximately in the middle of the pack of other developed nations and what we spend under age um, five. We're th- 30th out of 31 countries ranked in, in our proportion of GDP that we spend on the early years right now. 
it also would still, if you add it up per kid, we'd still be spending about half per kid as we do um, in the K through 12 education system. So um, it's not even bringing it up to par with what we do for six to 17 year olds. And you could argue that we should, we should bring it up to par or even more given the developmental importance of the first five years. And I can easily imagine the value-based argument that it's just worth it. I could also imagine, you know, trying to channel the economist who really wants to count the beans on this and ask whether the return on investment is worth it. And earlier, for example, I think you alluded to some of the hidden cost of underpaying, say, the childcare providers where they actually end up on Medicaid and SNAP and other public benefits like that later on. And so the system overall is actually paying for more than we realize, but potentially in inefficient ways. That's right. I mean, do we know if you were to try to quantify it in sort of a, a more strict monetary return on investment, how does this play out? I am not an economist, but many economists have, have tried to do the return on investment for various programs. And the the best data we have, unfortunately, are you know just by definition they're from older programs. So you have Abbasidarian and the Perry Preschool Program, which were operating in the 60s, very different historical context, right, than we have now. Um, the comparison group, the control group, didn't attend any sort of early care and education program, right? Whereas the norm right now is for kids to attend some sort of program before entering kindergarten. So that's one of the reasons why you, you see such huge effects back in the 60s and smaller effects nowadays because the counterfactual, who you're comparing it to, is, is different, right? Um, they're getting more of what the treatment is, so to speak. But so... And, and as well as the Abbasidarian and Perry Preschool served very, very disadvantaged kids and very intensively. If you were to index the cost per kid at Perry Preschool, it was about $40,000 a year. So we're, we're, not even, we're not close to that here. But given that, there's been return on investment for those programs that are, um, I believe, around 9 or $10. So for every dollar you spend, you get about 9 or $10 back. There's um, more um, sort of a... Uh, generalizable return on investments and generalizable to our current programs that are are less but they're still quite strike, striking between three and seven dollars that you get for every dollar you invest so it's still well worth it it's still a great bet safer than the the stock market right and i and i do feel obligated to come back to the the, the value proposition that escapes monetary quantification here where again that's someone who's taking advantage of paid family leave right now and spending time with my kids. I don't know exactly if there's going to be an economic output for Ethan or for me on this point, but it's one of the highest quality parts of life at the moment. And we invest in things like parks and other places that don't have a clear economic return, but it's, it's the reason, it's the good stuff about being alive. And too many families don't get to have that at all. I completely agree. I, I benefited from paid family leave when both of my children were born. And my uh, my daughter, um, both of my kids were quite sick and in the hospital when my daughter was very, very little. And I had paid family leave. I didn't lose my job over that. I, I can't imagine if I had to choose between leaving my infant child in the hospital and losing my job. That's a, a terrible choice that many parents face. And it's in moments like this that I like to think about this because we've we've all, we've been laying on the table a lot of problem spaces and I think it helps motivate things that we need to to do moving forward but that doesn't necessarily mean we haven't made progress already which if you realize we haven't that could be its own demotivating sort of thing 
And so if, as you look back over time, how would you characterize the trajectory that we're moving in? Are we making progress on childcare? We definitely are. No, it, it's, uh, I, I've been working on childcare research for about 15 years now. And in that 15 years, to think about all the states and localities that have really stepped up to the plate for preschool in particular, I mean, threes and fours have a, their experiences are different now than they were 20 years ago. Um, it wasn't the norm 20 years ago to attend ch- more than one year of, of preschool or childcare um, centers. And, and now it, it is among, among most kids. Paid family leave has gotten more attention than I ever thought it would in the, in the last five years. I mean, we, California was a leader creating its paid family leave program in 2004. You had New Jersey following in 2009. You had Rhode Island following in 2014. And now it's like this, this it's spreading. You have the District of Columbia starting soon. You have New York's uh, state program starting this year. It's, um, it really is moving the needle and helping families. The issue with the state taking control or taking the, the initiative on preschool and paid family leave um, is that you create a patchwork, right? And there are people in states that lack anything or any help before age five. I mean, there's, I believe it's four states that don't have any sort of public preschool program. So you have Head Start, you have childcare subsidies, but they only serve a handful of, of those who are eligible. It seems like there's a powerful political argument to be made to corral willpower to make movement on this space. I mean, even just that discrepancy of the salary between pre-K and kindergarten, a $20,000 gap, 31 versus 52,000. I was, I mean, the reason it's popped out to me when I heard you say this in another setting is just because it was larger than I thought it was. You know, it didn't surprise me it was a little bit less, but the, you know, almost a, a double. And I'm curious where you think the failure to motivate collective action on this comes from? Public opinion polls are largely really supportive of preschool and public support of preschool and using tax dollars to support preschool. Um, I think that the American public has really wrapped their heads around that learning begins before kindergarten. We should invest in kindergarten. It's the norm. I send my kids to preschool. My, My relatives do okay, we should use public funds for that. I think we still have this ambivalence toward maternal employment that um, ends up changing the debate in the first three years. And this is, this is why the paid family leave part comes back to my mind, right. to where if the intuition is we don't want to invest in that because you shouldn't be working anyway. You should be at home caring for your kids. Unless it's... you're low income, and then you should work because <laughs> you need to work to get TANF benefits. So is this an issue or a reflection of just not having the right collection of advocacy groups slash agencies who are kind of all focused on their own silos, not coming to the table at the same time to think about this in a more coherent way? There are some amazing advocates working on it and and that bridge the issues of parental employment and child care and child development. Uh, I think, though, the way that many of our policies are set up is that those are often pitted against each other, their goals. Well, we need to get parents working, so we're going to underinvest in childcare subsidies to to 
provide more families with subsidies rather than higher quality consistent subsidies that provide quality care. Um, and child care is this parent employment support, and early education is this education support. So we have preschools that operate three hours a day, nine months a year, that don't support parents' employment. So we have these disjointed policies that families have to try to make it work. They have to arrange transportation to get their kid home from preschool. Um, and if you're low income or single parent and you don't have a car or what have you, your kid's not going to go to preschool because they have you have to work the full day and you have no way to get them there. And that ends up being a result of just not um, making policies that support both parents or recognize the reality that that it is the norm for a child under age five to have all parents, whether it's a single parent or both parents, in the workforce. That is just how children are being raised today. And there are arguably more mothers, in particular, who would enter the workforce if childcare was less. And there's a lot of research in other countries, but also in the U.S., showing that when childcare costs go down, either through subsidies or from publicly provided um, full-day kindergarten, for example, or full-day preschool, mothers enter the workforce. So there's a, a really big labor force participation response. And that leads to more taxes, right? And more self-sufficiency and, and um, uh, female um, labor force participation that has you know, personal and societal benefits. What do you see coming down the pipe over the next few years? Or take the timeline out as far as you want. What are you um, excited to see? What do you think we should be thinking about um, is there research going on you think we should have on our radar? There is attention to this issue at the federal level. There's um, There's been more re- regressive child care tax credit plans that, that would not benefit low-income kids. But there are bills that would really change, um, uh, that would really help the, the situation in, in most families. Um, so Senator Patty Murray from Washington has a bill. It's Child Care for Working Families that she introduced back in September. It's basically a sliding income scale, very similar to what we propose in our book, where you would pay... Um, uh, you would receive subsidy of a, of a certain amount based on your your income, and it would really help families pay for childcare. I think it's that caps childcare expenses for families at seven percent of income. In in our book, we use use ten percent. The the reality of, at the federal level um, is that you know that's not happening anytime soon, given the political situation. That said, there's there's a lot of attention to it, and people are, are running on on the issue of of um, early childhood at the state and local level right now, we're seeing um, races being won, political races being won on this issue. I would, I think we argue that de Blasio in New York City, part of his success is due to the fact that he wanted universal preschool, threes and fours, and he was really successful in doing that. And New York responded, and the city responded and elected him. Um, Washington State and um, Seattle in particular. Seattle just had um, is implementing public preschool. Uh, cities like San Francisco and Oakland are interested in, in um, doing more for birth to three in terms of child care. So cities can also can kind of take up the reins and help fill in this gap. You know, we have this ten- increased p- policy attention to paid family leave, and we have a lot of growth in preschool. But from whenever paid family leave ends to whenever kids enter preschool is this really expensive gap for families that states and localities haven't traditionally paid as much attention to. And they're, they're recognizing that. Karen Morrissey, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun.
The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts.